impersonator, just talking to teachers. Podcast pedagogy. What is Phil reading this week? Podcast pedagogy. Listening to teachers. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Nailers Natter the book. Ideas and advice from the collective wisdom of teachers. Nailers Natter brings together a wealth of advice from the most influential voices in education today. In this exciting one-of-a-kind book, Phil Naylor revisits the very best interviews from three years of education podcasting, drawing on the advice and opinions from some of the world's most innovative educators. Available now for pre-order from Amazon and out on July 7th, 2022. Talking to teachers about educational books, why we love them, and how we use them in our classrooms. With guest authors, publishers, podcasters, and of course, teachers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Nailers Natter, the podcast that refuses to go away despite me um, claiming that I'd retired. So I, I keep being dragged back in by high quality books and high quality guests, none more so than Mr. Nick Hart, who is joining us today. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thank you, Phil. Nice to be here and um, really interested to be the one that pulls you out of retirement. That's amazing. Well, exactly, exactly. I, I, I tried to do it. Listen, the listener knows this, Nick. I tried to do it because I thought I'm going to become a best-selling author, um, and I haven't. So, so here we are. Here we are, still going. Anyway, the podcast's not about me. It's all about the guests and their work. So, for listeners that don't know, Nick, tell us a little bit about you, uh, your kind of work and role up to this point, and a little bit about what made you or want to write impact. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm an executive head teacher, which is um, sounds pretty fancy, but it's uh, means I'm a head teacher of two schools in a local authority federation in Maidenhead, as an infant school and a junior school, um, which is a wonderful mix. And I actually, I think I prefer it to an all through primary school model. Um, having worked in both, um, you really get to preserve the distinct nature of infant and junior education, which is which is wonderful. Um, aside from the day job, I um, do some work for Ambition Institute on their MPQs um, and uh, a, a little bit of support for um, organising research at Berkshire, uh, as well as trying to, to, to write in, in my spare time to figure out what it is that I think <laughs> I, I find writing useful to to clarify what's gone through my head throughout, throughout the day. So uh, I uh, I try to ju- juggle all of those things in order to make me better at my job. And that's that's the goal of all the things, things really, is to try and help me to be as, as good as I can. And I suppose that's one of the reasons why the book came about. Um, I had a couple of different um, book proposals in with different publishers and getting shot down left, right and centre, which, <laughs> which is fun. Um, but actually, uh, what th- this one came about with, because of a blog post that I'd written Um Bloomsbury got in touch um, about the blog post and asked if I'd like to kind of develop it into into a book. And uh, one of the things I've learned over the years that that um, say yes because one day they'll stop asking. So I so I said yes um, and uh, kind of fleshed it out into into the book uh, Impact that is thankfully uh, on the bookshelves today. 
It absolutely is. And uh, on our reading list, and I said to Nick just off air, listener, that this is a very timely book uh, and a really important read at the moment. So I'm reading a couple of books about climate, culture um, and making a difference and improving schools. Um, I'm sure that Nick won't mind me saying the other one um, is probably going to be next week's guest as we stand, which is Doug Lamov's um, that he's he's talking about at the moment. But I can see a lot of so much in terms of themes with these books. So if we can get into the book, Nick, and just a reminder for listeners, so it's Impact, a five-part framework for making a difference in schools. And as Nick said, it's a Bloomsbury book. Obviously, you know, I am biased towards Bloomsbury as, uh, you know, they gave, they gave me a chance as well. Probably not another one, listener, but they gave me a chance at least, so that's good. Okay, so we'll get into the book, Nick. Can you start by giving listeners an overview of the impact domains in this five-part framework? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, I think the first thing that's really important to say is that anyone, anyone in the in the in a similar role will have their own kind of model for how schools improve, and this is um, this is my one, the one that's the, the one that's in my head. And I suppose what anyone does when they try and kind of come up with models for improvement or anything else is that they're they're representing the reality that they experience, and this is my representation of what of what I've experienced and. It, it certainly isn't a uh, mag- silver bullet. It's not uh, kind of a an all-inclusive model of how, how schools improve because I think what needs to happen is we, we need to see a range of different models for how how to go about our jobs uh, leading schools and that, that we when we see a new one, we take bits from it, we reject bits from it, and so we, 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 we uh, refine what it is that we think. So hopefully what this framework does, this this model for school improvement is makes people think and uh, if people like parts of it great and they assimilate it into their own uh, way of thinking that's brilliant and if they reject bits that's that's fine as well because we all have to kind of make make our own way with the the context that we're leading but I suppose what um that uh, if I'm talking generally about it to start with it's um it is a it's a way of thinking it's um hopefully it's there to draw leaders attention to different parts of how schools run um, and and the different ways that we might make a difference ultimately to outcomes to children and so i've got these 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 five domains of outcomes to children of climate systems um colleagues behavior and colleagues knowledge where i think if we pay attention to all of them and appreciate the complexity of uh, how they interact with each other then we can f- pretty be, be pretty sure that we're thinking carefully about all the different working parts of uh, of, of our schools and and that's a, an important part of this as well is that there th- this isn't a linear model there isn't a simple cause and effect if i just sort out behavior then the school will be better if i just buy the right curriculum package then we'll be fine if i just do the that perfect bit of cpd using um, the latest thing that's that everyone's talking about then then the school improve it's not that it's not a simple cause and effect uh, model it's it's uh, one that appreciates complexity where all of the different domains influence each other in ways that we want and ways that we might not want in ways that we can predict and ways that are unpredictable in ways that advantage some but disadvantage others and um, and that that appreciation of complexity is, is is a theme that that runs all the way through really and um what i try to put across is that it's it's all about kind of appreciating the different strands of how schools run and then deliberately building on knowledge of each of those in order to make better decisions. Absolutely. 
Okay, thank you, Nick. So we'll get into the next day. Now, this is something that I said at the, uh, at the outset. I'm really fascinated at the minute. And, you know, it's a personal reflection uh, for the listener and for you, Nick. You know, I have not been on social media quite as much recently. I've not felt as if I've got as much to say because I felt as if it's quite challenging out there. And I know that, obviously, people who are listening will say, well, okay, you know, I see some of that online. I see some of the effects of perhaps what's going on more broadly in society. And again, I'm not here to offer judgments on whether that's right or wrong. I'm just reflecting on the experience of, and the lived experience, hopefully, of, of classroom teachers and leaders in schools. And climate at the moment seems to have changed. Certainly, you know, I hesitate to say post-COVID because obviously, you know, that's still a bit of a factor. But, you know, I really read with interest your, your chapter in there and just reading what you've got in your components of school climate. You've got uh, autonomy, mastery and flow, confidence in the team, clarity of purpose, belonging and psychological safety and trust. And I think that, you know, it has become more challenging in schools with some of those factors acting externally mm. and affecting what has become a more challenging school climate. So sort of broad question to start with, Nick, why does the climate matter? And then just to follow up, do you feel like, a, you know, perhaps I do and, and other people who I've seen online that the climate, the external factors acting on schools have really changed um, for the worse, arguably, and, and affected schools quite a lot? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'll start with that one. Uh, the, the last academic year, the previous one, when it was it was the first one without lockdowns, despite still having widespread disruption because of absence and staffing uh, availability, that kind of thing is probably one of the hardest, the hardest years that I can remember uh, in schools. And, and it's it, for, for loads of reasons, um, the, the impact of kind of lockdowns and, and change social, uh, social kind of patterns and norms for very young children meant that, that, that in, in a lot of cases, so many of us are experiencing a higher level of need among children um, with gaps in their learning, which makes uh, which makes obviously kind of the day-to-day running of school a lot, a lot, a lot harder. But then when you throw into that the uh, the life circumstances for all the adults that work in the school where um, there may be kind of vulnerabilities in terms of health for either those that work with us or their families that they spend a lot of time with all of that um massively affects how well anyone can think clearly about their jobs and how well anyone can can do their jobs um the those those that work with us in schools do an amazing job um every day and it's it's a hard job at the best of times because of the number of interactions that that happen every single day with each other, with children, and the decision fatigue that comes with having to make so many decisions between uh, those hours of kind of eight thirty and three thirty when there's children around. When you when you combine that that difficulty with the outside circumstances, it's no wonder everyone's been finding it so hard um, over the last uh, couple of years. But I suppose that just goes to reinforce why climate is important and um we when when i talk about climate what i mean is broadly how it feels how it feels to work in this school or to work in this team or to work in this department and um those bits that that you mentioned there all, all contribute and i think if if the climate is right then um we're far more likely to be able to dedicate our kind of thinking capacity and our and our attention to the the children in front of us so um if we 
if, if we pay attention to those things and appreciate that that the working environment makes a huge difference to how effective everyone is i think it's a really important thing for leaders to 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 try and pay attention to to to, to get the right balance between autonomy and alignment and the standardization to to clarify purpose really clearly to remove anything that is unnecessary from what it is that the adults do every day um, to develop relationships of trust and psychological safety because without those things the job's almost impossible yeah just to follow up on that nick and i think a lot of people will be kind of looking for reassurance that what they're thinking echoes and chimes with other schools and other leaders and something you talked about i mean you've got some really interesting case studies as well at the end of each chapter where you take yeah. it from a middle leader's perspective or a senior leader's perspective and one of the things as a senior leader you're looking at thinking well is my experience of the school reflective of everybody else's experience of the school and how do i how do i kind of measure and quantify the climate so you know you talk in the, the end of the chapter about how or why or should climate be evaluated so just tell us a little bit about how you kind of as a senior leader middle leader get a feel for the climate in school yeah so that um that idea about evaluation came from kind of the, a, a very a, a very common thing in schools it's, it's it's very common for for leaders or trust leaders or local authorities or whoever's kind of holding us to account to to try and quantify to try and judge how good something is um but one of the things in the book is is, is i suppose it's it's promoting caution around trying to make judgments because like you said our our perception of our school is different um we to, to the reality is and it, it can't be it can't be uh, a one-to-one -one replication of, of the truth um i was listening and listening to becky allen talk recently and she was talking about the imagined school the school that we imagine in our heads and the, the difference between the reality and that is is can be quite different and so when when i'm talking about here in the book about should we evaluate my kind of broad argument is that it's far more useful to to build knowledge of what it's like in school so that we can make better decisions rather than try and make judgments about how good climate is because climate is so broad it's 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 the entirety of the the feelings of every single person in the school and so if if we're trying to kind of evaluate what climate is like it changes day by day hour by hour depending on situations it depends whether um we've got all of our colleagues in or our teaching assistants off sick or whether it's the end of term and their assessments to be to be completed or there's there, there's people progress meetings or there's reports to write or 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 whether there's an impending inspection there's all sorts of things that contribute to to how how it feels to be in school and so if we're trying to make a judgment on it it's it's very subjective at different times of year and so i think what is more useful for leaders to do is to try and develop their understanding to build their knowledge of how it feels for a specific situation so it might be that we want to that we know that that the standards in reading need to improve it's far more useful to try and figure out the climate to do with reading than it is to do the climate generally how do people how do people feel about their uh their proficiency in teaching reading how um, how much autonomy do people feel that they have over the way that they teach reading? How confident are they in their colleagues 
in the teaching of reading. And so we can narrow it down a little bit in order to to build up our knowledge because we can only make really good decisions based on uh, on expertise. We can't we can't uh, improve our schools from a position of ignorance, and therefore it, it's it's all about trying to map the territory as accurately as possible. I think. Definitely. And such an interesting point that as well, because obviously you said about what Becky Allen talked about, about the imagined school. And quite often when we're talking about senior leaders' perceptions of what climate is like, um, there can be a misconception that senior leaders will always see this with rose-tinted spectacles and think that things are better because they're from this detached vantage point of, you know, and I'm I'm not saying that anyone says this to me, but, you know, from an office with a brew and an occasional stroll around and see everything is okay. But actually, you know, if you flip that around a little bit, you know, I've spent quite a bit of time recently for one reason or another, you know, uh, in and out of lessons, covering lessons. And actually my perceived reality has improved significantly by covering lessons um, actually in class has been really useful. And I've come away feeling much more positive about how things are as you said, from a teaching and learning viewpoint, rather than spending a day, I don't know, on call or walking around or on duty or that kind of thing. So it's really important, as you said there, to evaluate a certain part of the school and see it from all sorts of different perspectives to kind of establish what that culture looks like and climate. Uh, definitely, definitely. I, I, I agree with you there that the, uh, the covering lessons opens your eyes to all sorts of the small things that you don't normally see. Um, and one of the, the issues I have with... Um, kind of observations or learning walks that kind of thing is that simply by being there you change people's behavior you uh you, whether they mean it or not whether it's con- conscious or unconscious people children and adults change how they behave when there's someone else in the room regardless of who it is but particularly if it's the head teacher or or, or a senior leader um and so um we have to appreciate that the truth doesn't always rise to the top people are not always comfortable with revealing their true feelings about a particular thing because of um the, the perceived consequences and that's why psychological safety and trust are so important that that people feel that they can challenge and question and suggest ideas and to and to tell the truth about how um how the reality of school life brilliant right okay get into chapter two now nick which is systems and processes now i'm the kind of person that writes down what he's doing next week um, on a Thursday for the week after, including um, even with the activities with my own children as to where we're going to be, who's going to be doing what, what we're going to be doing from where. I've got my, and I don't do much running. Unfortunately, this is a uh, uh, just an audio podcast and not a video one, so nobody can see Nick and I uh, in our, I, I like I like your style as well, Nick, by the way. We're in our cold weather clothing, <laughs> here, aren't we? Neither of us are turning the heating on here, are we? Absolutely. But, <laughs> but in terms of uh, routine, so the running kit's out next to the door, everything's in the right place absolutely obsessed with james clear's work so you've won me over straight away starting the chapter with a quote <laughs> about um systems and, and goals but it's kind of an obvious question that why do systems and processes matter and for listeners you know i would sign push you to podcast with tom bennett for example who talk a lot about these systems and processes but the, the bit that i was interested in nick how you've unpicked what happens when they're not followed and everybody doesn't buy into those and again how does that feed into the kind of wider climate of the school so I suppose um, it, it's a, te- leaders need to understand the, the the point of of systems, and I think there's two 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 things to draw out. One is um, that the, just like James Clear kind of explains in that book, Atomic Habits, that the systems aren't to aren't necessarily to make us innovative or to to find new ways of working or to 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 creatively solve problems that 
that happen in schools. Systems are there to prevent mistakes. They're there to to prevent bad things from happening. And and th- there's all sorts of systems to, in in other domains to, in like surgery and uh, and f- and flight where the systems are there to check and double check and to to make sure that nothing's missed. And and I suppose that's one way of looking at systems that fits with James Clear's uh, ideas is that. Um, the idea that you fall to the level of your systems uh, is, is an important way of understanding what they're for. It, it's to to support every adult in the school to get the minimum level of what we deem to be acceptable. The systems aren't necessarily, I don't think, going to kind of push boundaries. They're not going to help us innovate, but they are there to um, to, to to bring about a kind of a base level of what it is that we think should be happening in schools and so those systems around curriculum right the, the, the curriculum is arguably the most important system in the school because it's it's the way that the learning is organized and set up and um with with that in place and with a shared understanding of how lessons run and timetabling and um professional development and and managing behavior at scale those are the things that you want as a kind of a bare minimum to make sure that that adults in the school know what they're doing that they feel supported that uh, their working memory is uh, is freed up to pay attention to all the the, the tiny details and the, and the, each interaction that we have uh, day in day out so that's that's one part of I think the the, the argument about about systems and um, I think the other one is back to the that original idea that I mentioned right at the beginning about complexity schools are such complex places that without systems we'd be kind of doing uh, we'd have different people doing all sorts of things there's a um i was reading um something at the weekend and it's um mary kennedy's uh explanation of uh of of what teaching is made up of she calls it passing the practice of teaching and and this is this is her um explanation of of what it is that teachers do so bear with me it's a it's a, it's a couple of sentences but it, i think it's it brings this to light uh, really well so she says teachers portray curriculum content in a way that renders it comprehensible to naive minds for students who are not necessarily interested in learning and whose grasp of the content is not readily visible to the teacher and who are restless and easily distracted in a way that satisfies the teacher's personal needs and I can't think of anything else that explains the complexity of the classroom so well as that and so succinctly. And so if we need teachers to navigate that complexity, we've got to provide systems for them to be able to cope with all of those different challenges. Um, and any of us that have worked in schools where systems are not as well developed, it's stressful. It's It makes the job so much harder. It uh, burns people out. And so it's, it's arguable that, that organizing and designing and patrolling the systems in schools is, is a fundamental reason, a fundamental strategy for improving schools so that we can have this baseline to move from, to innovate from. Yeah, listen, I couldn't agree more. I'm nodding away there. I've written about this myself, Nick, and just in schools where there aren't systems and structures, what you find is you, you breed a superheroes, yeah. a set of superheroes. And it's the kind of the one person that everybody relies on. So the one person that everybody shouts on the radio or the one person that everybody calls for. And when that one person isn't there, everything falls to pieces. And what you build is an over-reliance on one particular person. You, you, you know, you, you kind of undervalue people who 
I'm not say in the background, develop design systems that should run regardless of whether they're there or not. And I think it's really important for school leaders that are listening to think, right, who are the kind of people who can be systematic, organized, and allow, as you said, everybody else autonomy to work within those systems rather than rewarding the superhero person who comes in at seven, goes home at six, runs around all day and sorts everybody's problems out for them. It's not sustainable and it doesn't lead to improvement in the long term. There is a there is a trap to avoid as well, though, because well, I mean, anyone that gets into a leadership position often gets there because they have a really strong idea about how a school should run, how classes should should be taught, how behavior should be managed. And so one of the uh, I think one of the traps to avoid is um, the is the, the 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 chasing of consistency. So uh, often with with some schools and even some kind of groups of schools or, or trusts, you get kind of dictation of exactly how part classroom should run in different situations but um i i think there's a real balance to strike between being overly prescriptive and having real freedom over those things there is a uh obviously it works differently for different schools and different people but there must be some sort of happy middle ground somewhere whether it's further down one side of the continuum or, or maybe down the other where depending on school circumstances, you you create the level of standardization or autonomy based on the needs of the school and based on the needs of the adults in the school, because that is at the crux of workload and well-being, uh, where uh, teachers, teachers figure out how it is they go about those daily tasks. Hello there, listener, and sorry to interrupt this podcast with Mr. Nick Hart. Just a quick shout out for next week's episode, which I'm incredibly excited about. It's a returning guest who's been on the podcast before. It's Doug Lamov, who's coming on to talk about what I think is a seminal book, particularly for this moment in time. It's called Reconnect, Building School Culture for Meaning, Purpose and Belonging. Um, And it's a really, really important book. And just to read from the back of the book to whet your appetite for next week. So in Reconnect, the authors offer hands-on solutions to the sense of isolation and disconnection many young people feel from and within their schools. They explain how schools can foster a stronger sense of belonging whilst also ensuring academic rigour at a time when school when both in schools are sorely needed. The authors draw on their own extensive experience leading schools to show readers how environments that help young people thrive and become flourishing members of the community can be built. And I just think it's such a timely book at the moment. If you're like me, a leader in school, a teacher in school, if you're reading through this, you will find this resonates really, really well with you. So looking forward to speaking to Doug Lamov next week. And hopefully that'll be coming out before Christmas. Yeah, so, so important. Okay, Nick, now I'm looking down at the barrel of the uh, of the recorded software and obviously you're not going to be the same vintage as me, Nick. You're going to be, you're going to be, you know, I started teaching sort of turn of the millennium. So the, one of the phrases then was, you know, those who can teach, it was the big labor selling point to go into to teaching. And one of the ideas was that, you know, you can teach your subject, but you can have a second subject and a third subject and, you know, good teachers can teach anything. That was the idea. Now, Obviously, I've kind of evolved in my thinking around that, um, particularly now. I mean, I've always taught science. Um, I think I arguably, although my class may disagree, I arguably teach science better now than I did 15, 20 years ago because I spent a lot more time developing subject knowledge, working with colleagues, you know, actually prioritizing the lesson planning and making sure that I understand those concepts and being less concerned about bells and whistles of pedagogy and more concerned about, you know, content and delivery. So you've got a chapter about subject knowledge. So you know, obviously subject knowledge is important, but why is it important? And I suppose could, you know, good teachers teach anything, do you think? 
Well, Phil, you're talking to a primary specialist. We teach everything. We teach every subject. <laughs> that, that was my provocative question, you see. I like to, you know, this is, this is Nailers Natter 2.0. You know, we're going to ask these provocative questions. Emma Turner always picks me up when I did stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, I mean, I, I recognize that. I mean, I started in 2004. Um, I recognize that idea about uh, it kind of, I remember there being a bit of a kind of mystique about about what a great teacher was. It was I don't think it was at a time when I was training and, and coming through uh, as an NQT that it was really defined uh, what what great teaching was. And you had I mean I remember those those early years and and seeing teachers in my school at the time and it was kind of quite clear who the better ones were, but it wasn't really clear why uh, and it was never really made made obvious and then there was that great boom in uh kind of social media where this this kind of research into what makes great teaching was was suddenly available um widespread and and i remember thinking around that time i can't believe it wasn't part of training i can't believe it wasn't more um kind of readily available so so that we can learn from but i do i I recognize that about subject subject knowledge and i think your, your question about can can a good teacher teach anything? I think, yes, as long as we understand the nature of expertise. The nature of expertise is that um, it's, it's rooted in knowledge and that knowledge is knowledge of uh, the curriculum content. Uh, but it's more than that. It's um, the knowledge of kind of the misconceptions and when they, uh, and when they might arise and uh, how best to avoid those misconceptions and how to correct them when they occur and what the best way of explaining a particular concept or the best way of um uh kind of putting an idea across or modeling or modeling something and all of that is is subject knowledge if you don't have that in in a particular subject area then then no amount of uh, kind of jazzy teaching techniques is going to really help i remember i I had a go i had a go at teaching uh key stage three english and although my grasp of english is fairly good i i I think it was really hard because although i knew that i had to explain things clearly and to uh, and to check understanding and all those things that 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 pedagogical things that that good teachers do without knowledge of the texts without deep knowledge of the texts and and where it's and where it's going later on into key stage four it's really hard i had no idea it's really difficult it was a really difficult time to to have a go at that and uh, i'm glad i did because it's uh it, it's it kind of drives home that idea of the importance of of, of subject knowledge but 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 more than that is it's i mean talking from a primary perspective here as well we because we we our, our teachers have the same children day in day out for the nearly full time throughout the week except 10 percent ppa time that 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 is the knowledge of the children as well that makes a great teacher the the best teachers know this children inside out they know their specific um misconceptions they they know uh they can read when that when different children are uh beginning to switch off and when they're and when they're gaining interest they can they can judge when the right time is to to consolidate or or to kind of push for deep level level of understanding and so i think that that subject knowledge piece has such a broad range um that contributes to expertise and that any pedagogical work on uh, kind of those strategies that become really popular now they're all dependent on knowledge i think um christine council said it really well when she said 
something along the lines of uh, you can't rose and shine your way out of a poor curriculum. So what, when 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 I hear that and I hear the word curriculum, what I think is the curriculum that is, exists in the teacher's head, um, their understanding of the uh, of the of the journey and and, and the detail. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the, the kind of what I was hinting at, I suppose, there that I was only kind of joking and being provocative about the pedagogies, because obviously they're they're obviously important as well. But I did. I mean, at the in the early two thousands, I mean, I was appointed as the head of ICT. Bear in mind that I didn't even know anything about <laughs> ICT at all, but I knew the Ofsted in a box outstanding lesson and what kind of things you needed to do in order to get there. Now, were the students successful or not? Well sometimes I think is the kind of vague answer to that and I did the same thing with PE because I was a qualified football coach never mention it listener never talk about my A license um but that doesn't mean you can go and teach you know with with subject knowledge in other areas and mm. you know I just thought oh teaching PE that'd be fine you know what do you do you just get changed for 10-15 minutes go out run around a bit and come back in uh, but it's not as easy as that you know how to stand when you're playing tables tennis what kind of jumps in trampoline it's very very complex and there's a lot of subject knowledge that's required Absolutely. in there so I think you tie it together really nicely um, at the end there. And it is good to have that kind of primary perspective on that as well, because those secondary colleagues, you know, we do forget um, what it's like to teach the same students all day, every day um, with all these different disciplines. And like I said, and Emma Turner definitely keeps me in line with a lot of that sort of stuff. <laughs> so let's get into the next chapter, which is about colleagues and behaviours, Nick. So why, why do colleagues' behaviours matter? So um, if you look at... Um, what makes the biggest difference to children's learning is what happens in the classroom, uh, is what happens uh, with the relationship with their, their teacher or, um, or teachers. And so what it is that teachers do has to be um, a, a huge focus for leaders. And um, it's rooted in what colleagues know. So um, the nature of expertise is that um, we... we we combine kind of what it is we do based on what it is that, that we know. Um, and then if those behaviors are refined over time, if they're deliberately practiced, if they are uh, reflected on, then it's far more likely that we're going to get children learning what we've intended. Um, uh, but, but I think there's, I mean, you, we, we've talked briefly about the, the broad pedagogy, but there's some of the other kind of, kind of behaviors that, t- that teachers uh, engage in Um that they do day in day out that that is maybe talked about a little bit less and and I quite like the idea of thinking about um how our how teachers expectations are communicated so I mean it's it's, it's fairly normal to think that teachers communicate their expectations verbally uh, by explaining what it is that they want uh, but there's I like the idea of thinking about uh, the Pygmalion effect when it comes to teachers expectations this is uh, named after uh, well, this is this is a study uh, from the 60s uh, about um, some researchers who went into a school and and told uh, told some teachers that they have identified some children through a battery of tests that will bloom academically in the following year. Um, and what what the, they seem to have found is that those children did, in fact, uh, bloom academically. But the, uh, the, the, the caveat here is that there was no test. It was those children were randomly selected. And so what the researchers uh, kind of concluded was that if we expect children to do well, then we may treat them differently as a result and therefore actually help them better to do well. And it was around things like 
um, how much uh, the, the the attention that those children were given by those adults, the warmth of the interactions, the um, the, the the frequency and and the 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 length of those interactions were better. The t- the quality of those interactions were better. And I think it's a, a one of the important things that teachers can do is to recognize or aim to recognize their biases when it comes to classroom interactions and and check uh, who which children are getting uh, more attention or better quality feedback or more interactions and which children are getting the 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 poor end of that where they may be getting kind of few interactions or or less warmth or less smiling or only opportunities for kind of surface level interaction with with a teacher and and those those things i think uh, are, have the potential to to make a huge difference particularly for for groups of children who um may be disadvantaged in some way because of all sorts of reasons uh, gender or skin color or uh, uh kind of uh, poverty all those kind of things that the humans naturally unfortunately naturally have bias uh, towards or against, I think we need to be better at checking them so that we don't disadvantage anyone through our own actions. Absolutely, absolutely. Right, one bit that I like, Nick, and I've mentioned the uh, the kind of example scenarios that you've done at the end of each chapter. And in this chapter, where we're talking about colleagues' behaviours, you talk about the example scenario middle leader and, and Tim in Key Stage 2. And just one bit I kind of zoned in on was around the importance of, and I'm, I'm going to be careful using the word checking, but certainly establishing what the teacher's knowledge is like through you know drop-ins now a question for you as a as a primary head teacher you know it, it's it's drop-ins kind of part and parcel of that climate um what kind of things are happening on those drop-ins and how important is that in kind of building knowledge of colleagues behaviors so it, I, it comes down to kind of the 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 reason for doing it and so so the heads of school in in, in my school is particularly in uh, and me as much as possible as well being around the school noticing the little differences walking in and out of every class every single say every single day saying hello to all the adults greeting all the children being on the playground at the beginning of the day being visible all of those things are um a way of noticing what's happening around the school but it's also a way of influencing what's happening um in the school and so when we talk about trying to kind of improve schools or improve practice and that kind of thing we it's 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 common to kind of think about kind of professional development or uh policy or policies that kind of thing as as drivers for for what people do differently but a a well-chosen drop-in a well-chosen um kind of bit of attention to what somebody's doing particularly well and sharing that with somebody else and telling somebody else what you've just seen and and inviting somebody else to go and see that amazing bit of teaching that you've just noticed or to to send that child with their book to uh, another adult to to show the kind of work that's been produced all of those things uh have many many functions and i think one of them is um so that we know more about what's actually going on in the school and it also fills the windscreen for other people about what it is that's happening because we work in uh, teachers work in strangely in in what can be quite a lonely and isolated way and in, in primary we've got teachers that spend all day in their classroom nip out for a break nip out for a lunch uh, and may not see another adult in their team all day uh, and so it's really easy to get stuck into the kind of the 
the, the echo, I suppose the echo chamber of your own classroom. And so if we can break down that by getting mixing happening and, uh, and directing others to see other, see other, other colleagues and what they're doing, then I think it, it has multiple purposes. One of them is to, um, to build up our own knowledge, but, but collective knowledge of what's happening around the school, as well as to try and influence things through advi- little bits of advice here and there, or, um, recognizing something that's going well and sharing. I think there's, there's multiple ways that that can be used really well, but it, I think it is, it, it should, it should be really common where leaders in the school visit everyone every day as much as possible. Yeah, 100% agree. And uh, again, I do shameless plugs for own writing, but I've just done something about this, just written something about this, uh, about drop-ins and, and kind of building culture through drop-ins. Um, you know, as as usual with Twitter, it, it's met with, you know, lots of approval and lots of nice things, but also some, well, I mean, I think I wrote in the original article, you know, quite vitriolic responses of leave your teachers alone. Why are you going into classrooms? Don't you trust your teachers, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, this was never saying that this is what I do personally. It was just that something that obviously I've read and, and people seem to do. But I, I agree with you on the occasions that we do that, you know, staff are very keen. To, colleagues are very keen to want to invite you into the classroom to see what's going on. Students value that you know other people coming in to see what's going on and it does it like you said it builds your knowledge but also it kind of reinforces what kind of things are going well and it reinforces the positive climate that you were talking about earlier on and even like you said i was just laughing there with the way you speak to people you know as you know as as an executive leader in school you know the way that you deal with students and colleagues will make a huge difference on what the school represents and you know they can see that influence being passed down there so i think you know most people and obviously most people aren't on Twitter anyway, do welcome that, don't they? These these positive drop-ins. I do. I like, you know, you said about, I have got um, a TA coming into classrooms now, and it's great. I want to see more people coming into classrooms and seeing the great work that students are doing um, in the GCSE classes that I've got. I've got a preferred way of doing that, actually. And I think what, what, one of the things, I mean, it's really tempting to, to walk the school and to pick up on all the things that you think aren't going right to notice something that you think could be better but if you go if that's all you do if you go around you pick at small things then that's that's incredibly annoying for the people that that you visit but if you go with the with with the mindset of you're you're going to amplify the best practice you're going to to uh to celebrate what's going on really well but then you're keeping in the back of your mind any patterns for things that could be better there are far better ways to address systemic things that need improving than to to pick after a learn after a, a walk around the school or a learning walk or or a drop in or whatever we call them. But it's, it, it takes a lot of patience and uh, deliberate uh, deliberate action to kind of get those drop ins right. No, absolutely agree. Okay, last couple of questions, Nick, if we can. So uh, this might be, again, with a slightly secondary lens to this, but obviously, you know, you've written a, a kind of cross-phase uh, sections in the book anyway. So obviously outcomes are hugely important and outcomes matter. And you alluded to it earlier in the conversation about climate that we tend to think that, you know, you've got to sort out behavior first or sort out curriculum first and we can't focus on anything else until we sort it behavior and some of the behavior specialists and obviously i've had nearly all of them on here and i'm a huge admirer and huge fan of a lot of them but you know they'll come out with things on 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 uh, twitter again that will say you know before you sort behavior out you can't do anything else well it's not true is it necessarily because you can't abandon teaching and learning completely 
and just say, well, we're just going to flood the corridors and concentrate on behavior, or you can't abandon the curriculum completely because we're going to focus on, I don't know, um, well, again, behavior. So how do schools, particularly schools that are in challenging circumstances, how do they go about making sure that they kind of balance and prioritize where necessary teaching and learning with, with lots and lots of kind of competing and sometimes conflicting demands? So, so I've done this a couple of times in different schools, and um, I think what I've found that works in in my experience is that yes you have those competing competing priorities but it's about who you get to pay attention to them so for example um the, all those kind of behavior experts that say you need to to sort out behavior absolutely you do you need to make sure that the school is safe the school is calm the school is orderly um, and that takes uh, everyone acting towards an, an agreed approach i mean if you've got a school that is um, that 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 isn't good enough in that respect. Nothing else will stick without that being right in the first place. And so, absolutely, you would give everyone's attention to uh, making that right. But that doesn't mean that the leaders in the school, for example, can't focus on other things. So, in my experience, when that has happened, I may be directing everyone's attention to improving behaviour, but I've also got another group of people who are diagnosing or planning what curriculum work needs to happen um, and when that might be suitable to do and then maybe got another couple of people who are subject leaders who are quietly getting on with figuring out how it what how are we going to teach reading how are we going to teach maths and so that when the time is right when there is collective capacity to focus on something else i've got the work ready I've got uh, people who are already uh, a couple of steps uh, ahead and can slot into that kind of whole school attention um, or that whole school focus. So, so I suppose it's about uh, what you, what you want everyone to pay attention to and what you've got groups paying attention to, and that's the that's the real fun bit of of school leadership is trying to coordinate that and looking into the future and making a judgment on when the time is right to to shift everyone's focus onto something else. That's such a good model, Nick. I'm going I'm to pinch that because you see <laughs> it on a, on, a, on a micro level. You see it when there's an incident in school and something happens and you see senior leaders flood to the incident. And in the time that it's taken six people to get to the particular incident that they're dealing with, they've completely forgotten that there's about another 800 students still in the school where somebody else might need to do something with those. And you'll, you'll oh. often see me being the person that goes the opposite way, not because I don't think that the incident's important, but because I think, well, actually you might need to sort out the other stuff as well. And you see that, like you said, with competing priorities that, right, okay, so behavior is not where we should be. Right, we're going to make sure we've got everybody out the corridor. We're going to make sure we've got everybody doing detentions. We're going to make sure we're doing it. But actually, in the background, you need somebody who's working on the curriculum because what the students are learning may improve some of that climate to attract teachers to make sure that lessons are better and outcomes are better. You need somebody focusing on CPD, and you've written a lot of you about professional learning here. You know, we haven't really touched on that, but a lot about professional learning to make sure that on a Tuesday night when you've got your MPQH um, with ambition, great, great program, by the way. I'm not just saying that because you're on. I'm on the ambition one as well. Great program. Um, But you can focus and say, well, that you you know, Phil or whoever it is, you can have the time to do that. 
yeah. or your Thursday night CPD session still goes ahead, despite the fact that there may need to be two or three dissensions going on at the same time. And I love the idea that you've got all these teams at your level working on that in the background. And when it comes up, right, okay, you know, and it's typically August for us in, in secondary, obviously, <laughs> so, you know, oh, hang on, results aren't maybe where they should be. Has anybody been working towards a more structured, coherent curriculum with more teaching and learning, development teachers, et cetera? So that's really reassuring to hear at your level that, that, that leaders do think like that. But it's not easy, is it, particularly in, in challenging circumstances? No, and particularly in smaller schools. So my, uh, I'm, I'm talking from a primary perspective, perspective here. If you've got, um, if you're the head teacher of, a one form entry primary school, you might not have anybody else not class-based to do any of this work. You might have a, a, a group of really hardworking teachers committed to your community who can only do this work outside of work, outside of working hours, outside of school hours. Um, and so the, the capacity to bring about improvement in small schools is a real issue. It's a, uh, it's a huge difficulty, particularly with schools in, in difficult circumstances. And um, hats off to to, to, to leaders in, in small schools because it really is. I think I think one of the hardest the hardest experiences I've had is leading a small school. Yeah, and I guess that's uh, where sort of executive leadership does come into its own, doesn't it? In, ter- in terms of trusts, where you can share that best practice across, you know, different schools. And obviously it's contextual and, you know, some some trusts work in small areas, so it's similar, but not all the time. But that's where it's really useful that you can work across to kind of share that expertise out. Really interesting. Right, Nick, thank you very much for uh, a conversation tonight. Really, really enjoyed that. And again, I say this all the time, um, you know, it, it, I've got a lot out of the book and I've got a lot out of the conversation. Hopefully people who are listening will have as well. So could you just finish by telling us where the book's available, uh, whether you're out and about, because I know you do a few conferences, don't you? A few researchers, I've seen you pop up at recently. So tell us about anything that you're doing in terms of speaking or out there and any other projects that you're working on, because I know you're very prolific with the books, aren't you? So you might be working on something else. I don't know. Uh, so uh, the, the book uh, Impact you can find on Bloomsbury, Bloomsbury's website um, or any other reputable uh, online bookshop. Um, I've got another book uh, about school culture and climate with um, with Routledge. Uh, again, uh, Routledge website or, or anywhere else. Uh, I think that's plenty of, uh, of writing stuff at the moment, but I do try and kind of record something every week or so on my on my blog at Mr. Nick Hart, uh, wordpress.com. Uh, I try and share things that are interesting and useful on Twitter. Um, I've got a couple of speaking bits kind of in the, in the next uh, few months for various uh, uh, mats uh, and, and local authorities. But uh, I'm really looking forward to Research Ed Berkshire coming back in April. So we, it was the first one um, last summer and uh, it's all going it's all going well organization wise for to, to that again. And so uh, as, if there's any research heads uh, roughly with near where I am, I kind of try and get in there and uh, add my two pence. Great stuff. Okay. So just a reminder for listeners. So Nick Hart's book, Impact, a five-part framework for making a difference in schools is out on Bloomsbury. And like Nick said, you can get it everywhere now. Nick, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Phil. Nailers, Natter, just talking to teachers.